Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today we are honored to have Professor Vivek Chiber with us to talk about his latest book, uh, Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It, a book which was recently published by VESA. Um, Dr. Vivek Chibik is a professor of sociology at New York University and is the author of Postcolonial Theory and the Spectre of Capital, Locked in Place, State Building and Late Industrialization in India. And more recently, he wrote another book with, by uh, Yale University called Class Matrix. And uh, today he is here to talk about confronting capitalism. Um, Vivek, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Martez. Just a quick correction. The book is not by Yale University Press. It's Harvard University Press. Harvard University Press. My apologies. <laughs> Confronting capitalism, how the world works and how to change it. It's a big task. So can you tell us first how the book came about? And then we'll uh, delve into some more details about the book. <laughs> yeah, the motivation for the book was that um, we're still in the midst of a radicalization of a new generation. And this generation is coming to a kind of socialist politics, anti-capitalist politics. And it's been a long time since that happened in the United States. Mm. In the interim, since the 60s, a lot has changed. There have been a lot of developments. One thing that has been not, that has not happened is a lot of introductory texts or primers on what a political economy of capitalism might be, what it is about capitalism that produces injustice and how it might be that you could maybe build or fight for a better world. So I wrote this book as kind of a book intended for activists and students, which in simple, clear language presents an analysis of how capitalism works and of the sorts of initiatives and strategies that have been useful in the past to change it so that we might maybe try to do that again. Yeah, and when I was reading the book, uh, what struck me was that it's it was very, very easy to read, very accessible, the arguments all made sense, and I had questions as I was reading it, but the questions were sort of answered in the next chapters. Uh, uh, but let's let's uh, start with some definitions. But before that, um, you start the book by giving us a picture how socialism is gaining more traction, how more and more young people especially are becoming more interested in socialism. How did it come about? Well, I think there were two big things that happened. One was that uh, with the demise of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, um, there isn't such a stigma attached to the word socialism anymore or to even to uh, Marxism anymore, although that's less of a case. And the second thing is that the inequalities in advanced capitalism, particularly in the United States, are now so massive, so stark, that it's hard to avoid the conclusion that there's something wrong with the system itself. But when you think that something is wrong with the system itself, you start thinking about a appropriate framework through which you might understand it and an alternative to that system. The socialist tradition gives you both. It gives you a framework coming out of Marxism. It helps you understand the system and it gives you broad principles and to some extent also a model as to what might be a more humane, just society. And I think that's there's a reason that young people came to that. The trigger, I think, I really do think, it wasn't something like the Occupy Wall Street movement, although that was important. It was really the Bernie Sanders campaign here, Jeremy Corbyn in England and Mélenchon in France. All of these figures um, quite explicitly hold to the principles of anti-capitalism and think of themselves as socialist in some way. That brought socialism to the mainstream because these are all very, very popular and influential figures unlike much of the left in the last 50 years, which has been quite marginal on the outskirts of society. You combine these three things and I think it changed the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure if it was Margaret Thatcher or somebody else who said that it's not the best system, but that's the best one available. It, it was yeah. something like that. There is no alternative. That's There's right. no alternative. Yeah. And that's one of the myths. And the other myth is that like if it's a system in which every, everybody's equal. And if you work hard, you can make your way all the way to the top. So don't blame the system, blame yourself. And these are some of the myths that are perpetuated by by, by, by the capitalist discourse. And you debunk these myths in the book. Can, uh, can you explain that a bit? Well, the myth is that the 
because everybody is formally free, they're politically equals, and they have the full gamut of formal rights to go where they want, study what they want, seek whatever job they want. In that sense, they're free. And because they're free, and because the market rewards talent, they are free also to use their talents in the market. That means if, since everybody has some talent, it must be the case that if somebody is not doing very well, it's because they chose not to take advantage of their talents. They're too busy, they're too lazy, they don't have the right values, and therefore the responsibility falls on the individual if they have not utilized those talents. The ones who make it to the top are the ones most committed, most talented, uh, most uh, adept at taking advantage of their opportunities. The ones who fall behind are the ones who are not interested in succeeding, but who complain a lot. So that's the mm -hmm. idea. If, the, if you're formally free and the market rewards talent, then what's your problem? So what the book tries to show is that that's not the case at all. Talents are not rewarded. What is rewarded is power. What is rewarded is if some people own the means of production, they get to set the terms for everyone else. Mm. Very, very talented people, very, very hardworking people remain poor. And people who are born into wealth manage to retain that wealth because once you have an advantage in a market, it actually rewards advantages, not talent. Mm. And the wealthy come to the market with lots of assets with lots of information, lots of resources. The secret of the market, it, it rewards resources, not talent. And that's because it is a not an equal opportunity uh, domain, but a domain of power and exploitation. And that's what the book tries to show. Mm. And, and uh, that is also what you discuss about this unbalanced dynamics of power. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Let's start with a definition. Capitalism is a word that a lot of people throw around. They have different definitions for it, but you have outlined three main features of capitalism, which is market dependence, sales, and private ownership. And you state that two of these um, features had already existed even before the rise of capitalism in varying degrees, but private ownership is the most important one. So can you describe these three features and tell us why the most important feature of capitalism is private ownership and how has it deprived a lot of workers of of the resources until the rise of capitalism people had access to what we call the means of production which is those things which you use to sustain yourself the most important means of production is land and historically that was the one that people held most dear in modern society factories hotels anything that helps you generate income for yourself can be considered an asset and some assets give you command over other people's labor those are things like factories hotels restaurants if you own a bank things like that that's called private property there's a big difference between having some kind of community sanctioned access to the means of production and owning those production most means of production outright until the early modern period that is to say the 16th century or so most societies were agrarian societies. Uh, sorry, every society was an agrarian society. And in those, peasants did all the producing. Now those peasants had heritable rights to the land, but they did not own them. The community owned the land, or the landlord had rights to that land, and peasants had what's called customary rights to it. That means you could not do whatever you wanted with that land, whether you were a landlord or whether you were a peasant. There had to be forms of cooperation involved, and no one person was completely dependent on another person for their survival because everybody had independent access to their means of production. What happens in the 15th, 16th century, starting in Northwestern Europe, is that some of the landed classes managed to get outright ownership of the land for the first time. And for the first time, what they're able to do is threaten the people who are working the land with dispossession. And in fact, they do. They kick the peasants off the land. And for the first time, the majority of the population now no longer has access to the means of production. Small minorities also lacked access before, but they were on the fringes of society. Now for the first time, the majority lacks access and it has no choice but to come and work for those people who do own the means of production as wage laborers or as tenants. Now they're dependent on selling their labor power on the market. 
They are, in other words, market dependent. The people who use that labor power have to sell the products that they make on the market. They are also market dependent. So both classes, workers and capitalists, become dependent on selling something on the market for their income. That's called market dependence. And it comes about directly because you have private ownership of the means of production for the first time. And um, well, and that pressure to sell commodities, so it, people, you know, when they were agreeing, they still did sell their products or commodities, but that yeah, was the leftover. Some, there were some sales in the markets, but what yeah. they tended to sell was what was left over after they had taken care of their consumption needs. So production was not geared to the market. It was geared towards consumption, their own consumption, towards household use. And what was left to the market was what we call the surplus, what's left over after mm. that. Capitalism for the first time is a system in which everything is produced for the market. From the word go, when you buy your inputs, you intend to sell it for the market. That means competitiveness, efficiency, cost minimization become crucial because if you're selling on the market, you have to compete with other sellers if you're gonna make any money at all. In the past, competition was never a driving principle of economic organization. Capitalism makes it a driving principle for the first time, and that means everybody now has to contain costs, which is the, the fundamental feature of the system. Mm. And that pressure to sell, that competition, um, creates an unbalanced, let's say, creates some unholy, unwholesome conditions for the workers and um, I used to call every capitalist greedy I still do to some extent but you come in the book you say they're not greedy and you're not trying to moralize things but you're just saying that it's a different system they have different interests compared to uh, the, the, the the workers in a factory and that is what's creating that uh, uh, the, the, the unwholesome conditions for the workers so can you talk about that how, how does this pressure competition uh, affect workers in a capitalist system. Yeah, let's step back for a moment and go back to the issue of greed. Mm. Capitalists are greedy, but they're not m driven by the greed to do what they do. This is important. So even if a capitalist were not greedy, he would still have to launch continual attacks on his workers in order to stay competitive. Mm. So let's just unpack this. If it's not greed that drives capitalists, what is it? Well, I said a second ago, they have to sell their product on the market in order to survive as a capitalist. If you're selling a product in the market, what's going to attract customers to you? Well, if you're the only seller, it's not a problem. There's nowhere else to go. But if you have competitors, then what attracts customers to you is that you provide the same good more cheaply, or you provide a better quality good for the same price, which amounts to the same thing. If that's the case, if you're providing goods more cheaply, you also have to produce them more cheaply. Otherwise, you won't make a profit. Well, how do you produce them more cheaply? It's called cost minimization. You have to keep your costs, that is the things that you buy, to a minimum. And what are you buying? You're buying material inputs, you're buying raw materials, you're paying rent. You're also buying people's labor power through wages. If you want to make a profit, while selling your goods more cheaply, you also have to pay as low wages as you can get away with. That means you have to continually try to squeeze your workers so that you pay them as little as you can get away with, and you try to get as much labor out of them as possible so that you're maximizing your value from what you're paying them. You're paying them as little as you can get, but that doesn't help you if they're just lazing around, not doing any work for you. You, help, you want to pay them little and you want to get them to work hard. So there's two things you're doing to them. You are depriving them of higher wages, which they would like to have, and you're forcing them to work harder, faster, uh, with more dexterity, et cetera, et cetera. Both of these things involve assaults on the worker's well-being. Now, that's you, you do that because you have to do that. That's how you survive on the market. Now, for most people, that would be an unpleasant thing to do. You're, you're treating people as instruments. You're treating them unfairly. So the kinds of people who are attracted to being capitalists tend to be ones whose morality allows them to live with profit maximization, cost minimization, money being the end all and be all, which means there's a what we call a selectional process. There's a weeding out process so that the people you see in the positions of being capitalists 
tend to be people who value money, who value, uh, who devalue other people's interests, who value monetary and financial success. Well, that's what we call greed. So it's not that greed is driving the capitalists or capitalism, is that capitalism selects for greedy people to be in that position. So it looks to the observer like it's the greed that's driving the capitalist. But in fact, the position of being a capitalist attracts greedy people. And thank you for unpacking that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a car with my colleague coming back from work and I was reading part of this book to him. And we got to that part where you talk about capitalism being uh, and capitalism and greed. And 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 they said, look, one of my friends is he's a very nice fellow. He has a small workshop. He has ten or fifteen people work for him. I said he's not a bad guy, but you know he has invested a lot of money in there, so he takes more of a profit. And uh, that reminded me of that usual that common uh, that cliche justification for the for capitalism, which is the risk factor. If somebody reaps the benefit and it makes a lot of money it's because they risk their investment they have something to lose whereas the workers don't so what, what is your response to this justification of injustice generated by the system in terms of wages risk that investors take and that risk does should endow them with a premium of some kind that is to mm. say higher than average wages until they recoup their investment sure after they recoup their investment, it's not clear that they should have an ongoing privileged position in the recouping of whatever revenues the firm is making. Mm. On the other hand, it is absolutely false that workers don't take risks when they accept a job. The way the law has evolved over the past 200 years or so is that precisely because investors thought that there's too much risk involved in putting our money into an establishment. They pushed for legal changes which protect investors mm -hmm. from losing all of their assets should their firm go under, okay? Now, modern corporate law actually protects investors quite actively, quite aggressively, because the feeling is that if they lose everything, it'll be a disincentive to invest. So there's a lot of protection given to investors through bankruptcy law. On the other hand, when a worker takes a job and that firm goes under, there's mm -hmm. no protection for the worker. That worker has to actually absorb all the costs of that firm going under. And there's no compensation unless there happens to be a welfare state. Welfare states are unevenly developed. Corporate law is not. Mm -hmm. Now, that means then that in fact, while it's true that capitalists do have a right to some initial above average wages or salaries. It pales in, in comparison to the risks that workers take for whom there is no compensation whatsoever. So if the argument just first, the descriptive account of capitalism is false. If capitalists take all the risks, workers don't. The normative basis for saying that capitalists deserve protection and workers don't is also false. It should be exactly the other way around. The bulk of the risk is taken by the workers, and they're the ones who deserve protection. Mm. Um, let's talk about chapter two, capitalism and state. Uh, you draw a very dark and bleak picture of the state of politics, which is true. It's happening everywhere. And um, I was I remember like a few years ago, I was listening to, a, it, it was a, you know, I think it was a student discussion or something, and Milton Friedman, the very name makes me cringe, but anyway, was there, and they were talking about capitalism and democracy. And uh, Milton Friedman said that people vote with their feet, means, well, look, the capitalist society, there is democracy, that's why a lot of people would love to uh, immigrate and move to those countries and work. Um, in the chapter, this chapter two is about capitalism and democracy. So uh, there is this idea of pluralism that you talk in the book, that a lot of people, the politicians are um, selected or elected by the majority of the people who are the working class, but they don't necessarily represent their interests because they are the capitalists and they hold the key economic uh, positions in the state. So can you talk about how capitalism undermines democracy rather than reinforcing it? The idea of a democracy is that in the legislation, the policies of the state enacts, everybody should have some say in what is enacted and what the content of policy is. Unlike an oligarchy, where a small group decides everything as to what the content of policy will be. 
Now, it's a huge advance historically to give everybody equal rights of participation. We shouldn't minimize that. Until 100 years ago, only the wealthy had the right to vote. That's true everywhere. And in some countries, until recently, not even that. Now, when the poor got the right to vote, we called that the universal franchise. And it would seem that, okay, now the game is over. Now, the poor have all the numbers. And because democracy is a numbers game, the poor should be the most successful in putting their interest forward in the democratic battle. And indeed, for a long time, the wealthy were afraid that if you give the poor the right to vote, they will vote you out of capitalism. And <laughs> they'll say, we want a system in which everybody shares the wealth equally. And that's why capitalists and upper middle class people fought against democracy for 200 years. Now, when you got the democracy, what happened? What at, instead of the poor overwhelming the rich, it turned out the rich continued to have more voice in the democratic process than the poor. Now, that's a problem for democracy because it means instead of everybody having some say, who participates is unevenly distributed. The question is why? Why the rich? Well, there's two reasons. One is all political participation, all political influence requires having some kind of resources, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's anything else. If you want to organize people around your particular preferences, you have to have ad campaigns, you have to go do lobbying, you have to go door knocking, you have to have rallies. None of this stuff is free. All of it requires money. And what that means is in a society where people, some people have more money, they will have more resources to influence the political process. Well, in a capitalist society, who's got more resources, always and everywhere, by definition, it's capitalists. There is no capitalism in which the capitalists have less money per capita than workers. So the, the advantages that they have in the economy translate into advantages within the state as well. But there's a second reason coming back to the greater resources of capitalists. It's not just that they have more income. It's not just that they can lobby more effectively. It's also that the state itself depends on the investment decisions of capitalists to get its own revenues, which are tax revenues. All taxation comes out of income. All income is derived from investment. Investment is controlled by private capitalists. So the state, just in order to be solvent, just in order to enact whatever policies it wants to, whatever policies, whether right-wing or left-wing, it has to make sure that investment is going on at a healthy pace in the economy so that it can tax away the revenues. Which means that if capitalists see policies that they don't like, that they think are gonna be bad for profits, and they think it's not worth their while to invest, investment slows down. But investment slows down, the state's tax revenues dry up. So the state always has to give priority to the preferences of capitalists so that capitalists are happy. It's what Keynes called their animal spirits, business confidence. If they're happy, they'll invest. If they invest, now the state's got the freedom to enact its policies. That means any policy that capitalists would see as harmful to their interests will be taken very badly by the state, whether it's a social democratic state, a uh, neoliberal state or whatever. It's only under special circumstances that capitalists, the policies that capitalists are unhappy about can be implemented. In typical circumstances, they'll be screened out, which means they have a structural advantage, even if they don't lobby, even if they don't go door knocking, even if they don't buy off politicians. Politicians make it their business to always worry about capitalists first, everybody else second. That's in the nature of the system itself. You can't change it. And what are some of those circumstances where you said that if capitalists, if you if you have an example, capitalists are unhappy about the uh, laws that are to be enacted, but they have to. Is it the push that comes from the people, the unions that makes uh, make them, that force them, you know, concede? That's right. Um, the state can do a lot, even without assistance from the labor movement, assistance from social pressure. But it can do a lot within the constraints of what capitalists will be willing to live with. Once you start getting to policies that capitalists are unhappy about as a class, not just some capitalists here and there, but as a class, mm -hmm. now you have to 
ask, why would they ever agree to such policies? Well, they agree to policies that they're unhappy about when there's social, political, economic pressure on them, which makes it even worse for them if they refuse to agree with the policies. So a great example is, suppose there's a huge wave of strikes. Capitalists are saying, we don't want to see social redistribution. We don't want to see a welfare state. Labor responds with a gigantic strike wave saying that unless you allow the government to pass welfare legislation, we will stay out on strike. Now capitalists have to weigh two options. Do I allow this policy that I don't like or do I continue to lose profits because my workers are refusing to go back to work? At some point, if the strikes stay on long enough, capitalists will say, yeah, I don't like this social this legislation that the workers are demanding, but at least once they pass that legislation, the workers will come back to work and I'll still be able to make some money, whereas right now I can't even make any money. That's a kind of pressure, an economic pressure. It's the pressure that has been necessary for the building of all the welfare states we see in the world. You might think if, cap if the state has to serve the interests of capital, how do we ever get a welfare state? Well, all welfare states were built on the back of a labor movement. The threat that the labor movement posed to capital. That's what we're trying to build now, and that's what we have to build again, because without that, what you'll get is what we've seen happen to the Biden presidency, which is it started with very, very ambitious proposals, and they got whittled down so that, hey, it's funny, they passed a law. Every single element in that law that was going to directly benefit working class families was taken out. Why? Because mm. there was only one source of political pressure on Biden. That was pressure coming from capital. There was no countervailing pressure coming from below, from labor, from working people. And the result was that legislation was pruned to the point where it's a legislation that businesses are quite actually happy with now and workers got nothing. That's why you need to have pressure on capital. This is interesting, not on the state, but on capital, because real power in capitalism resides in the economy, not in the state. Mm -hmm. The state has power, but it's subordinate to the economy. And what you said about Biden, I guess, rings true with a lot of Democrats. I mean, uh, Democratic, Democrat presidents, Clinton or uh, Obama as well. But just on that, um, I again, that friend of mine that I, the colleague of mine, we always talk about different things on the way back home, and he's more left leaning. He says, "Okay, we can." And we live in Australia, so we're both happy that there is a labor government in place. But I'm more inclined towards anarchism. I'm completely distrustful of governments. But he still says, look, and he tells me very cheeky, you don't understand. We need to make, we need to change things from within the system. And I'm saying that, look, you know what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in England? Uh, you know what happened to Bernie Sanders with superdelegates? But you, you still make that case that state has a lot of power. Uh, should we completely abandon our hope on labor governments, given what happened to them uh, you know, around the world, and pick up more, let's say, disruptive, aggressive uh, uh, interventionist, let's say, actions to, to, to drive our policies? Or should we still, I mean, should we form, let's say, decentralized movements, leaderless movements like Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street? So what's your uh, take on that? Look, if you're trying to actually change people's lives, you can't ignore the state. Mm. With, with respect, uh, can you name me instances in the past 40 years of decentralized leaderless movements that have made enduring long-term changes in the distribution mm. of income, in social policy? You really can't. Has they haven't happened. Again, with respect, this is something that the student left is very into because it is largely a comfortable group of people. They complain a lot, but they're pretty comfortable compared to the rest of the population. For working class people, and indeed, I should say, even for anarchists, it's not that they ignored the state. They wanted to dismantle the state. But if you want to dismantle the state, you've got to actually organize. You've got to organize on a mass scale. This, I think this call for a decentralized leaders, leaderless movement reflects a period in which all you can do have tiny little eddies of movements mm. in which there's no real organization and no real program. That, if that's all you can do, Great, the model of a decentralized leaderless movement is perfect for you because that's 
all that's possible right now. But is that model sufficient to do something like build a uh, society-wide improvement in working conditions, society-wide improvement in wages, put into place national health care? I don't even know how you'd have a national health care system without the state playing a major role in it. It's not possible. What you have is in these decentralized communities, rich decentralized communities gating themselves off and paying for their own doctors and having to defend for themselves. I really don't mm -hmm. see how it's possible. Mm -hmm. So if you're serious about politics, you have to think about making changes on a macro scale for everybody, not just those who have more resources and can buy into a better life for themselves. State action. There's just no way around that. Now, if it requires state action, then you cannot ignore the labor governments. You cannot ignore the social democratic governments. But ignore does not mean you fall into line with them. It means either you reform them so that they become more sensitive to the interests of working people, working families, or you build new parties that replace them and do a better job. But this business, this current, I'm becoming hard on it because it seems like this particular generation of anarchists who call themselves anarchists are committed to not learning anything. So I'm hard on them. This is a bourgeois fantasy, this particular call for leaderless decentralized movements. Um, just look at the difference between Occupy and the Sanders phenomenon. Occupy was great. It was something that brought people's attention to real injustices, but it dissipated. Mm. And those, Elements of Occupy who managed to remain active folded themselves into larger movements. Without those larger movements, you get nothing. That's just a fact. And either this current left will learn that or it'll remain a collection of little talking shops inside cafes and student study halls. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a student, I had this friend who was a uh, he was he was a very hardcore leftist, and every evening he was in a student club in a student bar, and he would come home like at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. and he was all riled up. Let's just dismantle capitalism and everything. And I said, look, I come from Iran. To you, it's very comfortable to say you can easily occupy a street in Iran. People are, you know, they're risking their lives doing that, and uh, to you, it's just an intellectual trend. It was very well read, but it was all in the books. <laughs> I, I've known scores dozens of such people they're mm. around for about five or eight years and they get a job and you never hear from them that's that's unfortunately the fact <laughs> now uh, let's talk about uh political organizing a little bit on page 82 uh, of the book you state that uh, we can uh, we can uh, we can uh, democratize the state and through it substantially weaken the arbitrary power of capital, the arbitrary power that capitalists have over economic decisions. So the question is that with the, because uh, still a lot of people are distrustful of unions, so how can we form or organize a labor movement, uh, a workers movement, and also have a labor government that reflects uh, the needs of working class people? Is it through strikes, economic disruptions, or what are some of the strategies that we can use to bring that about? Well, there are two um, phases of working class building a more humane society. And let's, for the moment, suppose we're talk, talking about a humane society within capitalism. One moment is when you try to bring the representatives of capital, that is their political representatives, to the table and negotiate with them so that you can get decent legislation passed for yourself. That requires a huge wave of mobilization, strikes, etc., because you're talking about a situation in which by definition, labor doesn't have much say yet, like the United States today. Imagine if you wanted to get the American government, whether it's the Democratic Party or Republican Party, to pass the national health care. Why would they ever do that? It will require, require huge economic disruption by trade unions, by the working class in some way or form to, as I said earlier, get capitalists to agree to it. And if capitalists agree to it, their political representatives will also agree to it. That's, that requires, as you said, lots of strikes, lots of disruption and such. 
Now, suppose on the back of those huge mobilizations, you also build a political party that as its programmatic commitment now is oriented towards a labor agenda. You can do that by either creating a new party that displaces one of the existing ones, or if you're in a proportional representation system, you can just get into the system without necessarily displacing immediately one of the other ones. Or you, from inside, reform one of the existing parties, the way Corbyn tried to do with the Labour Party, the way Sanders is trying to do with the Democratic Party. Now, once you have a party in place, and that party really does have some influence in government, you don't necessarily have to go out on strikes and do the economic disruption all the time. You just need to be able to wield the threat of a strike or realistic disruption because your party is in government and it has the power to pass legislation. It just needs your support with the threat of the strike if and when the right or capital says we're not happy with this then they can say well if you're not happy with it you're going to have to put up with real disruption again so you wield it like you know a silent weapon but it doesn't require that people are constantly out on the street whereas in order just to get the government to listen to you in the initial stages you might have to be out on the street quite a bit either way you're not doing it without a labor movement and you've mentioned people are distrustful of unions well, some of that is deserved, but the fact is 72% of Americans say they would like to be in a union. They're favorable. So it's not the case, at least in the United States, that people generally have a negative view of unions. The problem is the moment they try to form a union, they get fired. <laughs> They're afraid. It's not that they don't like unions. And that we'll talk about in a few minutes, the obstacles to... Uh to political, to, to strategizing or joining unions. Um, uh, you, you talk about uh, Nordic countries as well. You, you do mention Nordic countries a couple of times and on page 98, no, sorry, it's uh, page 85, you do mention that um, the European left, they have adopted a program of guarded cooperation with employers. Now, a lot of my friends were leftists. They would say, well, we're looking for social democracy, something like, like, like Sweden or Denmark. And then the, on the other hand, you have people, the capitalists will, would say, no, that's not a social system. That's a capitalist system. But it's still, it's a preferred uh, sort of a capitalist system compared to what's going on in other parts of the world. So what is that? Uh, guarded cooperation with employers, that strategy that the political left, European left, uh, adopted? Well, first of all, you're right. It is still capitalist. These Nordic countries are still capitalist. It just happens to be a more humane form of capitalism. And because of that, it's a preferred form compared to what we have in the United States or even in England or even in Australia, really. So what? how does that different form of capitalism work it works because you have a huge proportion of the working class that is in labor unions less so today than 30 years ago but still far far more today than in the united states i think in sweden you still have around i think it's around 70 percent union density that means 70 percent of the labor force is in unions whereas in the united states it's around nine percent there's just no comparison now because so much of the labor force is unionized, employers have to take them seriously and have to give them some of their demands. Otherwise, they face massive disruption. Labor, in exchange, agrees not to constantly be out on strike. There's a kind of a bargain that's reached between labor and capital so that capital agrees to abide by social democratic policies. Labor agrees then to be productive and produce more in exchange for the profits and the revenues that come from their labor being plowed back as higher wages or as higher tax revenues. That's the bargain now, that has downsides to it. It means labor has to cooperate with capital. But until you're ready to get rid of capital, there's really no other choice. Either you cooperate with capital or you're constantly out on the streets and sooner or later people get tired of constantly mobilizing. This is again a student fantasy that if you just give people the chance, they'll spend six hours a day in meetings and in protests and that's just not going to happen. So uh, 
what I call it, when I say guarded cooperation, here's what I mean. Guarded cooperation is not capitulation. It's not saying to capitalists, well, tell us what you want and we'll partner up with you. It's saying to capital, here's what we want. Here's what we'd like, we would like for you to do. If you're willing to agree to it, then we will also give you something back. But only so long as you abide by your promises. That's guarded cooperation. And it has to come with a willingness to mobilize and uh, go out and strike and engage in disruption if capital reneges on its side of the bargain. That's a, what we call a kind of class struggle social democracy. And speaking of social uh, student fantasy, I was reminded of what Oscar Wilde once said that uh, I like socialism, but the problem is that it takes too many evenings uh, spending so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next chapter of your book is about political strategy and forming union. And when a few months ago, I watched that documentary, American Factory, and I did not know that there were businesses in America. I'm not sure if it's the case, case in Australia or not, but I don't think so because industrial relations work differently here, that there are all these businesses that are anti-union businesses. So employers uh, would ask them to come into the factory and tell workers how horrible a union is. And you talk about some uh, some of the obstacles that are in the way of forming unions. You mentioned three of them. There is a pre-existing field of power, there is demand on the resources, and there is something called wait and see. So highly skilled workers, we just wait and see what happens. So can you talk about these obstacles, please? Yeah. You can think of obstacles at different levels of generality. There are obstacles that are common to all capitalisms. And then there are obstacles which you'll see in some capitalisms, capitalisms but not in others. This anti-union industry, this union-busting industry is something you see more in the United States. It's, you won't see it in more social democratic countries because unions won't tolerate it. But let's deal with the more general ones first. There's this supposition out there that, look, if somebody wants to join a union, they can just go create a union, the way somebody creates a social club or a book club or a student organization. So when you see workers not doing it, right wing says, see, they don't want unions. This is just something that the socialists want to foist upon workers. Now, the reality is forming a union is not like starting a book club. If you want to start a book club, you just call some friends up and you do it. If you want to start a union and you call some of your fellow workers up, the next thing you know, you're fired. The next day you've, you're without your job because the employer finds out and employers understandably are not happy about unions. So the first obstacle to forming a union is that you're forming it in a setting where somebody with a lot more power than you doesn't like unions and that's your employer. And since everybody knows that starting talk of a union is to risk your job, most workers prefer to keep a job even though they're unhappy with it than to be without a job and therefore without a lifeline, because in capitalism, a job is a lifeline. The first obstacle is that. And in countries where labor has some more influence, they try to pass laws that make it harder for employers to fire unionizing workers. It's an attempt to try to level the playing field between labor and capital. The second obstacle is that even when you have a union, it's not easy to reconcile different workers' demands. Some workers want longer vacations. Other workers want better retirement. Other workers want maternal parental leave. All of these are important. None of them are not important. But you can't get all of them all at the same time because resources are limited. So you have to have participation and democratic agreement around the platform. It's possible and unions have done it. But you compare that to what the employer faces, well, the employer just has one goal, that's profit maximization. He doesn't have to worry about getting other employers to agree to what he wants to do. He has unilateral power and he pursues one objective. So unions are tasked with reaching agreement among different people with different needs in order to be effective so that the people will be happy and will participate. Capital does not. The third problem is this, this wait and see thing, or what we call uh, free riding, which is because there's a lot of risk involved in getting a campaign going and a lot of hard work involved, workers are reluctant to take it up unless they're guaranteed a victory. And even if they don't take it up, the union wins without them, they still get all the goodies. 
unions don't work in a way that only union members get the benefits in a workplace. All the workers in a workplace get all the benefits, whether or not they participate in union activities, union mobilizations. So what you think is, well, look, if they win without me, I get everything without taking the risks. If I take the risks, I might get fired. So it's kind of a rational strategy on the part of workers to say, let me wait and see if they win, which means let them do all the work. But of course, if every worker is thinking that way, which it's reasonable that if one worker is thinking that way, the rest will also, then you have the problem that there's a systematic tendency to not participate, not do the hard work. And that's all because in the structure of capitalism, you have greater power given to employers and the very resource scarcity of the workers imposes the risks and makes it reasonable for them to, to take a wait and see attitude or a free riding attitude. This is built into the structure itself. So across the board in all capitalisms, workers face what we call collective action problems. That's what makes creating unions hard. That's why even though 70% of the population supports unions, only 9% mm. is actually in a union. That's either they're irrational and stupid, or even though they support unions, there's reasonable rational grounds for them to not join one. Mm. And in my view, those reasonable rational grounds are the costs and the risks that go into actually forming a union. That's why it's very hard to do. Uh, and and you you do talk about some some of the strategies or some of the actions that unions uh, working class people can do to in order in order to invite more people to join unions. It could be strike funds, forming solidarity, which was one of the best parts of the book that I really loved. Uh, forming solidarity through having both political identities and also social identities. So can you talk about that uh, that a little bit? What are those, how can they form a social, how can they form a social, common social experience among them? If you think that the main reason people don't join unions is because they see it as too risky, too hard. The first thing you can do to make it more likely that they join a union is to make it less risky. How do you do that? Well, if they're worried that if I go out on a strike, I won't have any income, you create a fund which gives them an income in the duration of the strike. That's called a strike fund. And now you can say to them, look, yeah, you won't be, you won't have an income for the three, four weeks, six weeks, two months, however long it is that we're on strike, but the union will give you something so that you can survive. Okay, that technically what's that doing? It's lowering the costs to the worker of participating in the strike. There are many such things you can do. But at the end of the day, because you're a worker and because the employer has more resources and more power, even if the union has ways of cushioning the loss of income to you, it can't make the costs zero. Otherwise you wouldn't be in capitalism anymore. That means that no matter how good your union is at providing you with material insurance in the event of a strike, you're still gonna have to suck it up, make some sacrifices, incur some costs. It'll be difficult for you. So how do you get people to take that last step, to still make the sacrifices that any union drive, any organizing drives gonna require? You have to get them to willingly make some sacrifices for others and for themselves. That's called a kind of other ob obligation, right? You're, you feel obliged to your comrades. In the union movement, it's called solidarity. How do you do that? You do it through what we would call cultural work, through ideological work, through building social bonds, a sense of obligation to the other. In the same way that family members feel obliged to one another, close friends feel obliged to one another, you try to build identities for workers. Of course, through friendships with other workers, but ideally what you want is that even if a worker does not have a close friendship with another worker, they see a close bond and they feel a sense of obligation to them. And that is done through making the feeling of being a union member, one where you have an automatic sense of partnership and fellow feeling for other union members if you don't know them personally. The way, for example, emigre communities, Iranians who are abroad might feel, hey, here's a fellow national, somebody who I have a common culture with, and you'll feel a kind of bond even though you don't know them very much. That's the same way that organizational membership should be generating bonds of solidarity, then you have a chance 
that you will make a sacrifice for another union member, even if you don't know them. So the two steps are first, forge really tight bond locally. So union membership is also a social membership. And then create a social identity so that you see other anonymous people in the same organization as fellows, as members of the same community. That can only be done through a kind of social, cultural, ideological work. That's what the, why unions always had their own movie memberships. They're, they used to have their picnics. They used to have their own newspapers. They used to have summer camps for children. You, you build a community around yourself. That's not done anymore. And I don't think you can work without them. Uh, that reminded me of, I guess, agricultural workers' strike in California, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1970s. It was called, I was just checking the name, uh, Salad Bowl Strike. I read an article some time ago that those strikes, uh, there were a lot of interracial marriage between the people who were on, who were on, who went on strike, Filipinos marrying Mexicans, Mexican marrying Americans, that that just showed that there was a strong a sense of social identity among them as well. And also Cesar Chavez, uh, there was an article again some time ago called Militant, uh, sorry, Measured Militancy about Cesar Chavez, uh, the way he strategized. So he formed local radios. Uh, they had funds to help immigrant children go to school. So he did also pay a lot of attention to those social aspects of, uh, of, of unions as well. Social and, you know, they, in New York City, where I live, you still have cooperatives, housing societies that were for union members. Before the welfare state, union members had support societies like medical insurance, like old age pensions. The union used to organize them. So you also saw that the union is benefiting you materially. And then you feel a sense of loyalty to that union. It's not just the wages that you're getting. It was cradle to grave. The union said, mm. you're one of us. We will take care of you. You build your own little social universe in that. Without that, it's it's hard. You're mm -hmm. not going to have Twitter substituting for social communities. It's just the left's going to have to learn that. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about the last chapter of the book. Um, you talk about uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. So a lot of um, people on the left, they say, yes, they were all but things, but it was Stalin, no, it was Lenin, you know, they have this <laughs> blaming game. Uh, but that's, uh, you do say that, yes, we, it, it's it's useless like to put the blame on either Stalin Lenin or say, well, it was not really real socialism, but there are lessons that we can learn from them as well. Uh, organizational lessons and institutional lessons. Can you talk about these two features of uh, Bolshevik revolution? Well, let's start with the organizational. This goes back to what you asked me in the earlier part of the interview. Um, I, if you look at the spectrum uh, socialist um, gains and victories in the 20th century. And by the spectrum, I mean all the way from successful revolutions to the more um, sort of incremental gains that social democratic parties made in countries like England or the Nordic countries or Germany, even in the United States. They all have one thing in common. They were, they were led by well-organized working class people, either in trade unions I shouldn't say either. Yeah, either is the right word. Either in trade unions or in parties. And in every country except the United States, both. You had a trade union and a labor party. These are both forms of organization. It's not spontaneous uprisings. It's not decentralized, self-governing collectives. It's fairly centralized, well-organized parties and organizations of the working class. Now, that's an organizational lesson. Whether you're a Bolshevik, or whether you are a social democrat, the one thing that two of you have in common is that you are leading a movement of working class people. So social democratic parties, overwhelmingly, their individual members were workers. Until the 1960s, everybody who they elected into parliament was originally a blue collar worker. If you look at the cabinets of the Swedish Social Democrats, the British Labour Party, the German Social Democrats, they're not lawyers, bourgeois, professors. They were all workers who worked their way up the party. Now, why is that important? It means that if you're going to make the gains you're going to make, A, if the sociology is true that you need to have a mobilized working class, then your party can't be a party that's staffed, that's overwhelmingly with the members are urban professionals, middle-class people. 
because that's not the people you're trying to organize. If you look at the socialist parties today, most of their members, look at the Labour Party, it's middle class people. So first of all, you have to organize the working class and have them come into your organization. Secondly, that organization has to then in some way or form be a fighting organization. It can't just be a talking shop the way the DSA is mostly today in the United States. It's got to be a fighting organization. And if it's a fighting organization, it can't be decentralized people doing whatever they want. You can't fight unless there's some degree of unified action. Now, that's a lesson that I think comes out of the 20th century. You might say, well, that's no longer relevant, but the burden of proof is on you if you say that. The reason we study history is to see what worked in the past and then see, well, is the situation today sufficiently similar to the one in the past that the model of what worked in the past can be transferred to today? And to my mind, we're in capitalism. Capitalists still will try to block everything you're doing, which means you have to fight against them, which means that some lessons of the 20th century are still relevant. And I think the organizational lesson is you have to have a party. It's got to be a party of working people. It's got to have some degree of centralization. And then finally, it's got to be ideologically coherent. It's got to know what it stands for. It's got to have a message that it takes. You said earlier, people are worried that socialism, they're not sure what it is. Well, you've got to tell your members when you try to organize people, tell them, here's what we stand for. You need to have a program. That's some degree of programmatic centralization. So that's the organizational lesson. I do not think social democracy or socialism is possible without a fighting, well-organized party of working people. The institutional lesson is this. Well, what are the institutions that we're fighting for? Well, if you were in 1922, 100 years ago, you would say a planned socialist economy. Well, the examples of planned socialist economies we've seen ha have not worked. So again, you might say, well, I don't care. That's what socialism is. We're going to have a planned economy. Just like the example with the organizations, the burden of proof is on you. When every example of a fully planned economy has not worked, you can't just wave your hand and say, we're going to have a planned economy. You need to take seriously the possibility that it's just not on the cards, that planned economies don't work. So maybe you settle for something less ambitious, which is what we call market socialism, in which you have a both um, you eliminated private property. So the key aspect of capitalism is gone. There's no capitalists anymore. But where you rely on some degree, we don't know how much, but some degree of market competition to allocate investments and to dynamize the economy. It could be a system in which you have uh, full competition between worker co-ops and no planning. Or it could be a system in which you have a gigantic state sector in which there's some degree of planning, but where you also have a non-state sector where you have worker-owned co-ops doing the competition, perhaps, but you have to be open to the fact that the institutional model of socialism that we had in the 20th century maybe is not possible. At least you have to be open to that. And the when you see the hysterical response, you know, on some of the left today, if someone says planning may not be possible, you see that socialism has become a religious belief for these people. It's not a scientific way of studying the world. Socialists have to be realistic. To me, realism is these two things. I might be wrong, but you have to show me that I'm wrong. You can't just pound the table. One, you need to still have an organization of the working class. And the second is, as long as the system that replaces capitalism is one where private exploitation or state exploitation is no longer possible, then that system, if it's consistent with your moral principles, it could be market socialism, it could be an advanced social democracy, we don't know. But you have to be clear what your moral principles are, and then you see what's the furthest institutionally that I can drive my institutional changes. To my mind, you won't get as far as a fully planned economy. So you have to think about something less ambitious, but still morally acceptable. That's the institutionalist. And, uh... One final question, which is different from what we just talked about here. Throughout the book, I guess there are a couple of times you talk about uh, the focus on social justice uh, when 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 the Labour Party is uh, unable to bring about real changes in economic conditions. They focus on non-economic issues such as you know religious freedom, freedom of speech. Uh, do, do you think this fight for social justice is detracting 
the labor movement or, or or the labor party from really focusing on um, the issues that are more important to the um, to the working class people. And you're usually labeled class reductionist if you do that. But what's your response to that? The substance of what you're saying is true. I wouldn't label those uh, initiatives as social justice initiatives because by definition, they leave the majority, not only of the population, but even people suffering those injustices out. So let's take race, for example. Mm. Uh, issues of racism are considered to be social justice demands. Yeah, they are. And insofar as you're actually fighting against racism, you should be doing it. It's not a detraction, it's not a distraction from the labor issues. It's about how you do it. Now, I do think that today's, what we call identity politics, are um, not helpful for social justice. Not because I'm a class reductionist, whatever the hell that means, but because I think the kind of anti-racism we see today can't fight racism. It is the anti-racism of wealthy people. And I would say the same thing for the gender struggles that are going on. So it's not about the issues that you take up. You should take up race. You should take up gender issues. It's about how you do it. You cannot fight racism without a program for universal jobs, uh, universal health care, education. If you, if you look at polls of black people in America today and you ask them, what are your main concerns? Their main concerns are what if you had a woke, college-educated radical reading them and you, and you said to that person, some people say this is what's important for racial justice. That radical would say these are all class reductionists because mm -hmm. what are the main concerns that black americans working class and some middle class say it's jobs health care education um i forget what the fourth one was housing mm -hmm. these are their main mm -hmm. concerns but what does anti-racism today focus on culture triggers cultural appropriation discrimination diversity these don't show up in the mm. opinion polls taken of working class blacks. Mm. The left, for the most of the 20th century, when there was a left, and it took up racist struggles, it always foregrounded the interests of working class people of color. Today's anti-social justice, anti-racism, takes the interests and the demands of elite black and brown people. Now. If that is what you mean by social justice, then yeah, it's a distraction, but you shouldn't call it social justice. This is mm. a class strategy of well-off members of black and brown communities or women. It is a strategy to further the interest of the upper middle class and the bourgeois members of these communities, not of the working class. So to my mind, if the working class movement gets going again, it will of course take up these issues for the simple reason that in the English-speaking world, at least in the Atlantic world, most of the working class is no longer white. So if you're going to have a working class movement, it's going to have to take up race issues. And a big chunk of the working class now is not male, which mm. means it's going to have to take up gender issues. But it'll take them up in a different way than the official left today is doing it, which is entirely captured and hegemonized by elites. So I don't call these social justice movements. I call them elite movements. Mm. What we need to do is make anti-racist struggles a movement for social justice again. But that'll only happen when it's combined with a class movement. Mm. Is that class reductionist? Oh my God, no. It's the bourgeois reductionists who label people like me class reductionists. Mm. And, this, uh, and the fight for social justice has always been embedded in, in a socialist tradition. They've always been the uh, fighting. The yeah. only tradition that's fought for actual justice in the modern era has been the socialist tradition. Find me another. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you had this beautiful sentence in the book that because uh, the leftists are usually, you know, dismissive of the liberals. Oh, he's a liberal. But all those liberal rights were actually won by the labor, by working class people, people who actually fought for social justice. And I, there was again another article about the Industrial Revolution. Some people are saying that the Industrial Revolution improved the lifestyle. Yeah, but it was not the industrialists who did that. It was the people actually who formed uh, councils and unions and they started fighting for their rights. Look, every increase in productivity, every increase in efficiency will be usurped by capital if left to itself. If you want the additional 
money, additional wealth that's generated by productivity increases to go to improving the life of workers, they'll have to fight for it. So insofar as the Industrial Revolution improved the lives of workers, which it really didn't, wages were actually stagnant for much of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. But insofar as in the 19th century you saw that improvement, it's because workers fought for it. Capitalism creates the possibility for improvements, true, more than any other system ever did, but only the possibility. To make mm -hmm. it an actuality requires class struggle. And that mm -hmm. is only done when working people bring themselves together. That was as, That is as true today as it was 100 years ago. The problem is the left today doesn't want to think about these things because it's, it's not a left. Mm -hmm. It's a grouping of professionals who use the language of the left, but it won't be a left till it's actually embedded in the working class. And if our listeners are more interested to know more about why the uh, uh, why 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 say the labor is more focused on cultural issues, they can read your previous book, which is Class Metrics. Yeah. Uh, is there any other book that you're currently working on, Vivek? Uh, well, I've just started work on a book on race, actually. Oh, great, great. Uh, on so... why the race on first of all on how race. Racial domination is rooted in economic domination. And then why and how the left forgot this fact and has now degenerated into what it is, which is a, you know, uh, elite dominated grouping that focuses on culture. Mm. Uh, when do you think it will come out? It'll take me about a year, year and a half to write it. So probably late 2024, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I can secure a promise from you, right? <laughs> to talk about that book here on your books network again. <laughs> I, I would be happy to. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Vivek. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Martez. It was very kind of you.